Hey, everybody. Uh, how you doing? Thanks for coming. My name is Nick. I'm really happy to be here. So uh, first, how about a round of applause for Media Evolution for putting this thing together. This is so nice. Such a nice conference, right? What a great, what a great group. Um, I'm very humbled and appreciative to be here. Um, okay, so today I want to talk about creativity um, and what that means, because uh, I think you know there's been some challenges to this idea lately, especially in light of advances in you know artificial intelligence. Um, you know, the idea was that AI was going to come along and like do all the boring stuff so that we could hang out and like make art, right? But like that's not really what's happening. Like it's the, the things that have captured the public imagination lately are AI systems that like write poems and like make images and do these kinds of things. It's kind of like, wait, what's going on there, right? Like, what's, what's happening inside these systems to let them uh, create these things? So what I want to do is try to dig in a little bit into what's happening in uh, machine learning systems, artificial intelligence systems, what's happening in the brain, and maybe draw some parallels to help us kind of suss these things out, um, and maybe have you know, like a framework, I guess, to think about creativity um, kind of moving forward. Okay. So a little bit about me, just to kind of situate. Uh, this is me, I'm Nick. Um, I am from Georgia, right here. Georgia's in the US. You probably don't know where that is. You know where Florida is? It's like the one that points out into the water. We're the one above that, okay? So that's where Georgia's from, Atlanta's there. Um, I was a musician for a really long time in Athens, Georgia, and in Brooklyn. I played uh, a bunch of different bands, put out albums and stuff like that. Um, I studied literature as an undergrad and critical theory. Um, and it wasn't until later in life that I started getting into technology. That happened at a grad school program at NYU called ITP, where they took a bunch of artists and you know, people into different stuff, and they throw like circuits and um, algorithms at them and see what they can, uh, can make. And that's where I started getting into programming. Like I grew up in a rural area. I, when, I, when I was a kid, people didn't mess with computers. You played American football and went camping and those kinds of things. Um, but yeah, I found out that I really liked this stuff. And I really liked art too, so I wanted to continue doing that. And so I began working for an organization called rhizome.org, which is an art organization based within the New Museum, this cool building of, uh, in New York. And Rhizome is dedicated to internet and digital native art. Um, I worked there for four years as director of technology and um, did a lot of archiving of artwork and worked with places like the Getty to like, try to figure out how we talk about digital art vis-a-vis um, -vis, like, other art forms. So that was a lot of fun. Um, one thing I did there was I learned a lot about GIFs because early internet, you know, GIF is a, the GIF, the animated GIF, is a um, internet native media format. So many early artists of the internet were working with GIFs. So I did a lot of archiving of GIFs and those art forms, and I had to kind of understand how they worked, which turned out well because a couple of years later, I met this guy right here. His name is Alex Chung. He's the founder of Giphy, um, and he was putting together a team to build um, a GIF search engine, and he needed an engineer to help him out. And I had the correct background. And at the time, everyone laughed at us because they were like, a GIF search engine, that's the dumbest thing I've ever heard. Um, and maybe they were right, but we kind of believed in it. But we were like really right, actually, because um, it's like way bigger than I could ever have imagined. So every day, we have about a billion people that we reach with our content. Um, every day, we serve 10 billion pieces of content. That's GIFs, stickers, videos. Um, this is because we're embedded in pretty much every social network or every kind of um, app, these kinds of things. If you've ever sent a GIF, to communicate or something, or if you've ever put a sticker on top of your Instagram video or those kinds of things, that's us. And we also get one billion searches every day. So people are you know, typing into their little input boxes, happy birthday, I love you, these kinds of things. And we're getting a billion of those every day. It's, it's um, kind of ridiculous. 
Um, so early on, you know, like I said, as an engineer, I worked on the website, I worked on our web crawlers, like trying to pull content in. Um, but as we scaled, we began to encounter problems as we had so much content, we didn't have enough people to label that content um, so that we could, you know, then uh, give it to people via search. Because um, people type stuff in, and we have to have metadata around content so that people can find their stuff. So um, this is about the time when um, machine learning algorithms were getting good, and they could make labels on, on, on images and stuff like that. You know, there's a cat, there's a dog. So I started working and focusing on that. And that's been my main focus um, for the past six or seven years. And I've been building projects, uh, products and th things that uh, work on search, so finding gifts, um, content discovery, recommendation systems, those kinds of things, and even creation tools using machine learning models to help people um, transform media um, using machine learning models. OK, but that's enough of that. So let's start talking about creativity. So um, do you all know who Nick Cave is? He's a musician. Anybody who's an American musician? Um, so he's a great musician. He's a very serious artist. Um, he, t he makes great music. Um, and uh, you know, nothing but respect. And uh, so recently, he's got a website where you can like, ask him a question. And it's like, someone's like, hey, Nick, uh, what do you think about using ChatGPT to write lyrics? And he had a very, very strong response to that. Let's read it. ChatGPT's intent is to eliminate the process of creation and its attendant challenges, viewing it as nothing more than a time-wasting inconvenience that stands in the way of the commodity itself. Why strive, it contends. Why bother with the artistic process and its accompanying trials? Why should we just make it faster and easier? I mean, this is a totally legit you know, way to look at this thing. Um, but I think there's some assumptions in this, and the assumptions are about the creative process itself. Like I think Nick Cave would say, ChatGPT is cheating, right? Um, but, and in order to make good art, uh, to make anything creative, you've got to really dig in, right? Like, it takes work. So I want to challenge this a little bit and say maybe AI systems and stuff are not something that are other or just cheap or like cheating. Maybe it's something we can work with. And to do that, uh, we're going to get a little, we're going to dig in a little bit, okay? So I'm going to talk about neural networks, which are the things that, um, you know, make, uh, you know, these creation things, these, these AI systems that uh, generate um, art and uh, images and things. And we're going to talk about brains. And we're going to try to see how these things are similar. And maybe by picking them apart and how they work, we can um, understand creativity better. Uh, OK, so first, let's talk about machine learning models. Sorry if this is dry. I'm going to try to make it fun. Um, so say you, these are called discriminative models. These are the models that have been um, very popular for the past five or six years. They do recommendations, algorithms, you know. Um, uh, they do classification problems primarily. So say you wanted to build a model that, you know, we have like a bunch of like European art masters, um, and we want to build a model that can, you can show it a, a painting, and it'll tell you who painted it. Who would, how would you do that? First, you got to create training data. And the training data is ground truth, like real information that the system will learn. And so that starts with, a, um, an observation, in this case, a painting, and a label. Who did it? So you know, here we have a Picasso, um, Da Vinci, uh, Van Gogh, right? And so we have all this data. We start putting it in the neural network, and we start to train. Uh, what does training mean? Um, well, we're trying to optimize the prediction from the network. And we do that by iterating through. Every time it learns a little bit better, and its predictions get better. When you first start, the predictions are going to be terrible. It's going to be random, 50-50. It's not going to know. Anything, you know, it's just going to make something up based out of the labels. But the more it learns, um, you optimize and getting better by saying, okay, what did it predict? What's the right answer? Let's turn some knobs until it gets better and starts getting out the right answer. And this happens over time. 
and you test and test, and your goal is to minimize errors and improve accuracy. So then once you have a model that you think is like good and you're ready to use, um, you don't want to use it just to predict stuff it already knows. The goal is to be able to predict stuff that it's never seen before. So you're going to get a new painting, and you're going to say, hey, what is this? What do you think this is? And it's going to say, I feel 83% confident this is a Van Gogh painting. And hopefully it's right. And then you have a system where you could take you know, a billion images, run it through it, and in a couple days, it's going to classify them for you. So this is the discriminative model. Um, and of course, these are also the models that have... Um, you know, they've done a lot of good, they've made a lot of money. You know, think about e-commerce recommendations, you go on Amazon, you know, those kinds of things. Hey, you like this book, check out this book. These are what have been powering that. Um, but they've also, you know, caused some problems too that have been um, hotly contested because um, they do things sometimes that are, or they have side effects, I guess you could say, that are, that are um, kind of surprising. Um, and I'll get into that more. But yeah, so this is a discriminative model. Um, and remember, the goal is to have something that can take new information and make a prediction about that new information. That information is pre-existing. Okay, so generative models are kind of what have been the hot thing recently. Um, and so for this example, we're going to make a horse generator because I know everyone wants something that generates horse images, right? Like, so may, say you're making an app for kids, you're like, every day you get your daily horse. Okay, so this is how this is going to work. You're going to take a bunch of observations. You're going to try to get as many pictures of horses as you can. Black and white pictures, front, back, whatever, right? You, you want to you fully encompass this idea of horse and all types of horses, like the, um, the, you know, the concept of horse. You want that to be represented as well as it possibly can in images. And then you're going to put it into this model and train it. And instead of making predictions about this data, it creates new data. It outputs new data. So it's kind of the same thing where it learns patterns and it learns associations in the data. But instead of making predictions about other data, it generates new data based on the data it's learned. Um, and it does this by this generative model. Um, so you're saying, you know, give me a brown horse. And it's going it, to, it'll kind of make these representations of the images inside the model. And it's going to sample these, these representations for this concept of brown horse. It's going to grab, you know, 50 brown horse um, representations. And we don't always want to make the same brown horse. We make a different brown horse every time. So we're going to add in a little random noise to start with. And it's going to take that noise and massage the noise until it can generate, until it can generate a horse image. And you optimize this by saying, these things that it's producing, um, how close are they to real horse images? So yeah, so that's the difference. You're generating new data instead of making inferences about old data. Um, OK, take a little bit of water. Everybody, everybody, everybody OK? <laughs> I know it's a lot. There's more to come. OK, so what do these models learn? Um, so like I said, when you feed it these, um, this data, like it, has to, it has to create some sort of representation of this data. And computers and uh, these algorithms, uh, what they learn is associations and correlations between data, but it, uh, it, it are these kind of amazing relationships and correlations that human brains can't really learn because we're not computers. So for example, this is kind of like an idea of what the Giphy, we trained a neural network to do our recommendations. And so what we did is we took a bunch of GIFs, and we took a bunch of queries, and we took a bunch of anonymized user behaviors, like what people did with our products, which is primarily around communication and expression. And we put it into a neural network, and we trained it because we wanted to be able to make predictions about 
content, right? Um, but in that process, um, it learned how people communicate. This is like an emergent property of this network, is that, hey, you know, we want to just give us gifts for, for search terms, um, but in order for this model to do that, it's got to learn what happens in the data and how people communicate. And people communicate is pretty sophisticated, right? We got like things like sarcasm and irony and all these kinds of like meta attributes of communication and language. And it learned these things. And like that was kind of surprising. And not only did it learn them, it learned them like really well, so well that you know we would we would type in a query and we give us these really funny things, these things you've never seen before. And we were and I was and it was like, holy cow, you know? This is like, it feels creative in nature because it's doing something so different and surprising us and it's finding these novel relationships between these things. So these are the discriminative models. Um, so yeah, when I first encountered that, I was you know, kind of uh, awestruck, right? And I was like, wow, there's really something happening here. Um, but that's what they learn. These, so they create representations of the data and, and in that representation, it's kind of like a graph, like a network. Everything's connected. All these representations are kind of connected by nodes. Um, and it's very similar with generative image models, you know, the stuff like um, that creates images and text, these kinds of things. So this is kind of what a generative image model learns. Um, say you're going to feed it a bunch of cats and dogs. I'm not going to feed it. You're going to give it data about cats and dog images. And um, what it's going to do is understand, it's going to you know, break down these images, um, and it's going to um, encode them inside this thing called a latent space inside of the model. It's going to create like a, 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 you know, a, um, a version of that image that's just a mathematical representation. But as it creates this network, it learns attributes and features of these images, and it kind of puts them in these different spaces. So, you know, we got some cats, you know, daytime cats, daytime dogs over here, but then we have like nighttime stuff. Here's a cat at night. Here, there's you know, dogs in the night. So, you know, it's like a conceptual space basically inside the model where all these things exist, and you could like traverse this space inside the model, and people have um, and made really cool images of that, and you can see how these things model conceptual relationships between data points. So this is like kind of what's inside the generative model, is this big network of relationships. Um, yeah, so what do generative models create? Um, well, like we said, generative models create data that looks like the data that it was trained on, um, and that's the goal. You know, like, we want more horses, or more cats, or those. And whenever I think about that, I, I think about this quote from Cormac McCarthy, who's a, an American writer um, who died a couple years back. Um, and he says, the ugly fact is books are made out of books. The novel depends for its life on the novels that have been written. So what is Mr. McCarthy saying? He's saying that um, anything that's created by humans in, in, any, in any way is not something that just pops up out of the ether, right? Um, it has a lineage. It has everything inside of it. Um, is a, some sort of representation of other things, right? He was a big Faulkner and Melville fan and uh, Hemingway fan, right? And you can see it in his style. And I have to, you know, it kind of feels like when you're making something, you're sampling things you've already experienced, right? You're pulling from these samples and then you're adding a little bit of noise, this maybe yourself, your personality, to make something new. Okay, I think you see where I'm going here. Now let's talk about brains. So how do they work? Um, okay, I want to do some like optical illusion stuff to, to, to demonstrate a point. Um, okay, so this one right here, right? You see this like uh, shadow of the cylinder? It's not there, uh, actually. The, the, the pixels aren't colorized like this. You can see as the image is constructed, there's no shadow until it's done. These pixels here, they're all green and uh, cyan. I mean, gray and cyan, there's no red. And this little image here, it changes the same color. I mean, it stays the same color, the square does. So why 
do we see things that are not there? Well, the fact is, everything we experience is a mix of real sensory input and a prediction from your brain. That what your brain expects. Your brain is anticipating what it's experiencing. Um, which is kind of startling and a little different than maybe what we're used to because we like to think of ourselves as taking in information and then processing it, you know? But that's not what's actually happening. Everything that's going, everything that we experience and everything we do is a prediction, is kind of a prediction of sorts. Um, so what is this? You know, this is not like some uh, LSD-fueled rant, right? This is like real science, neuroscience. Um, this is what the data is showing. Um, and it's called predictive processing. And so what this means is that the brain, what the hypothesis is, is being proven, is the brain is a generative model. It's a generative Bayesian model, which means it updates um, as it learns stuff. It has these priors that it updates. So how does this work? Let's kind of walk through an example here. So maybe you're walking and you see you know, this thing in the distance. Your brain is making predictions about what this thing is exactly, right? And you're going to pull in your priors, everything you've ever learned, to try to figure out what this is. And so, for example, is this a human or a scarecrow? Well, what do I know about my environment? This is urban. It's not rural, so it's probably a human. Is it moving? Yeah, it's okay. It's a human. And then, you know, you got that prior updated. So I think it's a human, but, but what is it doing? Well, it's raising its hand. Is it waving or is it, you know, threatening? And so your, your brain is trying to anticipate what it's seeing. And it, your body is going to react differently depending on what kind of prediction it makes, right? If it's friendly, you're gonna be relaxed, oh hey. But if it's threatening, maybe your blood pressure's gonna rise and your blood's gonna flow and you're gonna think maybe you have to run away or something, right? So your body's anticipating what it needs to do. Um, this may, you know, you may be like, no, I don't, I don't buy any of this, I'm not a computer, I have emotions, right? Turns out emotions are all part of this too. There's a really wonderful uh, neuroscientist named Lisa Feldman Barrett. I encourage you to read her books and uh, you can go to Spotify and uh, you can find lots of podcasts with her interviews, but she's one of these people you listen to and it totally blows your mind. Um, and she focuses on emotion and how emotions are made. And what she says is the brain uses emotional concept, motion concepts to categorize sensations to construct an instance of an emotion. When past experiences of emotion, like happiness, are used to categorize the predicted sensory array and guide action, then one experiences or perceives that emotion, right? So there's no part of your brain that's just like, here's fear, here's happiness, right? These are concepts that you've kind of learned. A lot of times you learn them through uh, your social channels, right? Um, emotions change from culture to culture. They're kind of relative in how people express emotions. So there are things your brain learns, and there are things that your brain does to your body to anticipate what's happening and to choose uh, future actions. Because um, it's easier, it's easier to kind of categorize what's happening to you than to try to completely analyze everything that's going on, right? Like if you, if, if we tried to understand every single thing that's happening in the world right now around us, we'd be completely overwhelmed with information, right? Our brain's gotta shut that out and it's gotta fill in some gaps. It's gotta focus on what matters. Okay, taking it a little further. There's this thing called the free energy principle. Um, it's uh, done by a neuroscientist named Carl Friston. Um, and what he says, he tries to tie all this stuff together. And he's saying, um, he's like, intelligent systems, their primary goal, which is like me or you, anyone that we're an intelligent system, um, the primary goal of these things, like the base fundamental foundational driver is to do this thing called minimize surprise, or they call it surprisal, which has a little more meaning um, in, you know, thermodynamics and neuroscience, but you can think of it like surprise, right? So you got this generative model inside your head, 
And what it wants to do is have the best model of the outside world, so it's not surprise. Why? Because surprises are, number one, they're, they're metabolically inefficient. If you're surprised, your heart rate goes up, you're using your glucose, you're using energy. Um, that's a bad thing. And also surprises could mean like a tiger, right? You know, you're like, you're going to get eaten, you know, so you don't want to be surprised. And the more you know about the, the world around you, the better. And so the primary goal here is to learn more about your environment, to take in stuff, to update your priors so that you can have a better model of the environment. But it's also a theory of behavior. It's not just about taking stuff in. It's about making choices and making actions. Because part of what you want to do is remodel the world outside of you more like the model inside your head, right? You want to change things so it better matches what you have modeled. So it's a dynamic system kind of going back and forth between these two things. Friston says, active inference. Active inference is the thing we just looked at, it, right? It's like this very active process where you're inferring the world and you're also making impacts and changing the world. And it's this feedback loop, right? He says, active inference foregrounds and exists existential imperative intelligent systems, namely curiosity or the resolution of uncertainty. Surprise, resolution of uncertainty, these are kind of the same things, this measurement, right, of what your brain predicts and what actually happens. Your brain's always trying to minimize that mathematical difference between what's out there in the world and what you're expecting. And that's how you, you know, like we were saying, the better model, the better predictions, the, probably the better off you're gonna be. But I think what's really interesting here is that he talks about curiosity. Curiosity is the fundamental thing here, right? Intelligent systems want to learn. They want to grow. They want to experience stuff. And when you have curiosity, to me, that feels like a precursor to creativity. Um, you can't really have creativity without being curious. Um, so you remember how I said that, you know, that model for Giphy learned like weird things like sarcasm and irony, right? It's an emergent property of that model. And so emergence is when you make a quantitative change to a system and you get a qualitative change in behavior, right? So humans, say we have this like, you know, or an intelligence system, say we have this kind of baseline thing of minimizing uncertainty, right? Well, that may be the, the, the fundamental, but it doesn't mean everyone's, the way everyone does that is gonna be the same, right? Because everyone's different. You're genetically different. Your brains are wired different. Um, you've had different life experiences. Um, and you know, we're not so worried about tigers and stuff anymore. We're the world we're trying to learn and the world we're trying to create to reinforce our model is not the same. And so you have these emergent properties of creativity where people are gonna be doing things a little differently. But I do feel like if I had to, you know, creativity is this big word, but like what's kind of what's happening here, you know? I tried to throw a bunch of words together that <laughs> there's probably more. You could probably come up with more in your head, but like you're resolving uncertainty, you're experimenting, you're engaging with the world, you're taking action, you're self-organizing, it's like this feedback loop, right? That's what creativity is. You make something and you put it out there and you learn from it and then you, you keep going. So what do brains create? Like what are people creating? Uh, yeah, they're kind of like predictions, right? They're predictions of what's inside people's internal model of reality and what they believe. Um, but you know, everyone's internal model is very, very different based on where you were born or who, how you grew up or you know, what you ate, like affecting your gut, you know, that's driving different signals to your brain, these kinds of things, right? And it's not always these like, um, you know, creativity and these kinds of things, it's not this, you can't really think of it as this kind of purely reductionist kind of optimization system, even though that may be kind of what's happening at the bottom, all the stuff on top of it is where it gets really interesting, right? And so people are, 
when they make something, they're kind of interrogating themselves, right? They're interrogating their mental models of the world. They're trying to find new relationships. They're trying to express things. They're trying to communicate what they have inside of them with other people so they can experience that same thing. Okay, back to the AI. Um, so now we know that we have generative models that make things, and then you're a generative model too, all right? So now it doesn't feel so weird, right, that, to think about these two things working in tandem together. Um, and um, an AI might be something that actually is an extension of us, or not an amplifier. Um, so I found this really great quote from this guy at MIT, Jose Luis Garcia del Castillo y Lopez. He works in an architecture department, and um, he has lots of students that use um, image generation um, models to create um, new architecture works. He says, Working with a neural network is an iterative process. And as the designer continues refining it, they gain awareness of what they actually want. In a way, it's not that different from going to a therapist. That's kind of interesting, right? A therapist. So you're working with this system outside of yourself. It is doing work, but you're doing work together, right? And you can make quicker leaps and bounds to discover what's inside of you to dig into yourself by using this other thing. I mean, no one exists. I mean, if if you go to a therapist, right? I've been doing it for years. It's a great thing. You learn more about yourself so you can kind of update your beliefs, update your priors, better understand your emotional reactions to things, and better understand how what you see happening in the world, you know, how to better update your model, right? So it's the same thing, I believe, where you can work with these systems to amplify the things we already do and to maybe make them faster and easier and better and more expressive and come up with new things. Okay, so I'm going to end with uh, some predictions myself. Um, number one, I think Nick Cape's still right. Uh, lazy creators will still produce lazy things. If you want to use ChatGPT to write your song lyrics, go for it. It's probably going to be a very statistically average song, right? Um, but hey, people have been making kind of average stuff forever. Um, so, you know, whatever, no harm, no foul. <laughs> whether they do it themselves or whether they do it with a machine, whatever. Um, that being said, I think, well, I believe that it will become normal to collaborate with AI systems to create new things because they're going to be able to ideally um, knock out a lot of the, the, the tedium, you know, just help you move quicker and faster. And I know that may feel scary and it may feel like an ontological or existential crisis, but I think it's going to happen no matter what. So we probably need to update our priors, right? And kind of change our mental models and then do things to that, that express our mental models in the world so that we influence what happens. You know, I don't think the future is deterministic, but it's uh, very likely um, um, probabilistic. And so, um, you know, I think if, if you take actions and you want to influence the world, you can in, you insert yourself into that uh, probabilistic outcome, right? And make some change. Um, okay, and as AI systems improve, their outputs will become more and more creative, inspired, or poetic. I think the things that brains learn and the things that brains create, um, AI systems will be able to continue doing that in their own way. And some of the things that we think are really, really hard and, and, and weird and strange, like language, you know, language is always thought it was really, really hard. And then we train these models, and I'm like, holy shit, this thing learns, <laughs> it learns like how to be witty, right? Um, I think as they continue to improve, what they make is going to be creative and inspired and poetic. I can imagine uh, a symphony or a piece of music created by an AI system in the future that's going to be, feel very moving and it's going to connect with you and make you feel something very human, even though it may be synthetic. But you know what? I think it's okay. Um, because in the process, as these things get better, they're going to teach us more what it is to be human 
ourselves. Okay, that was it. Thank you. <laughs> Thank you very much. Uh, yes, we have time for questions, so think about your questions. I uh, have some, I, I'm also like in my fields right now, but um, so I think this is really interesting uh, to think if, if we just like limit this to talk about this kind of AI and like my interaction with like my instance of, of these tools, there is something about like considering it a kind of visualizing mirror for what's inside mm -hmm. uh, my head. Uh, and when it works, when it serves that purpose, I can see that it's really useful. Uh, and then I suppose if it doesn't work for that, then I either uh, like need better training data or I will just stop using the tool. And mm -hmm. that also yeah. would be valid, I guess. Totally, yeah. Um, for sure, yeah, I think, um, you know, they are, so if you're talking about, you know, using a system and, and making stuff with it, um, it could be an issue with the data. You may not want to use it, but it's also, it's like an instrument or something mm. too. You know, you pick up like an instrument, you don't know how to play it. You got you to kind of figure it out. So this, you know, this is currently called like prompt engineering, right? Or like you have to, and anyone's ever made an image, you know, you know, you got to kind of do all this weird and wacky text to put in there to kind of get what you want. It's a very iterative process. Um, but, you know, these things do have a lot of information that we don't have. For, for example, okay, I'm, a, I'm not a neuroscientist, believe it or not, <laughs> but I used GPT-4 like the whole time to make this thing because I was trying to figure out some, I had some ideas and I wanted to make sure these ideas were correct. And so I would talk to this thing that had luckily read a whole lot of papers um, on the field and I would ask it questions and it would be like, no, that's not right, but you can think about it like this, you know? Mm -hmm. So I used it to learn a lot of stuff very quickly. I mean, I also read papers and kind of dug around in those kinds of th things. Um, but yeah, it's kind of like having like a really, like a genius best friend who's just kind of hanging out and you can just be like, hey, by the way, what do you think about this? And they're like, no, you're wrong, you're gonna do this. <laughs> yeah, so, and then, and then, okay, then we can think about it as sort of teaching but also about like sketching. So I'm thinking that, you know, you, everybody, a lot of people have like a genius artist best friend who can just think of anything in their mind and then they're just like, like they'll just sketch out an image of it. And, and I will never have that skill in my life. Mm -hmm. And I suppose this is kind of the same. Like some people will get really good at sketching with this and probably more people than, than those who do it with a pencil will yeah. potentially be really good at sketching with these tools. Yeah. Okay, but then what about the teaching? Because if you say that these systems can learn to be witted, does that mean, and I'm sh showing that I may not have understood your talk anyway, I thought I did. Does it mean that it has in fact figured out the rules of what is wit inside it? Um, yes and no, right? Like it doesn't understand things like we understand things. Like when you, when you think about wit or sarcasm or these kinds of things, like you have this understanding, right? These things don't have that understanding, but they have, a representation of these things in the form of the data inside of them. And then they can take that information and make a statistical output, like based on this stuff. And when they do it, when they, when they output it, it works, right? So it kind of like, what's, what's the difference here? Like if, you know, language is this thing that's kind of dictated by how it's used, right? Like it doesn't matter if it doesn't understand language in the same way we does, as long as it can do it and, and, and we can understand it and then we can do it back, you know, then it's, 
But then we can just be witty, we witty at each other. Like then we can be joking around in a closed system. But I'm thinking about sort of value in the world. So like, we already have witty humans. So adding like more witty voices, I'm not sure actually like is a massive like objective good. It's an interesting fact. But if it could explain to us the principles of witiness, like if it could turn itself, its attention on itself and its own processes, and then tell me what are in fact the rules of wit, so that I, for instance, could be wittier yeah. or like have better comic timing, which I like, let's yeah. be real, hit and miss, you, you've met me. Yeah. Uh, that would be incredibly helpful. Well, they kind of can, uh, like because it's encountered that information in the training data. It's probably has a couple of books inside of it, you know, that's like how to be funny or how to be witty. And so it takes what people have already written and internalize that, right? And so when you say, hey, how do I be funny? It's going to give you yeah. like what's kind of already existing. And it, what if those people were wrong? Well, they probably weren't wrong because they, I mean, they're probably comedians and stuff like that, you know? Like they probably wrote books. Like if I read a book by Steve Martin on how to be funny, I'd probably learn how to be funny. And that's it's, true, but in my experience, sometimes people are wrong on the internet. Everybody's wrong on the internet, yeah. <laughs> so so th this is like, oh, this is so appealing and it's also so challenging. And I guess uh, once again, we're moving towards a lot of things are being true at the yeah. same time, like useful yeah. and not useful. I think you gotta hold lots of different conflicting ideas in your head at the same time and be okay with that, right? Like, That's wonderful. Yeah. Uh, let's take questions. Uh, I, I have, let's move into the lights so we can see each other and let's have a little bit more house light, please. <laughs> um, could we have, do, does anybody have a question? There's a question right here in front of me. Now I can't actually see where the runners are. Uh, please keep waving, waving, uh, wave with the big hand so the others can see where to send the mic. Thank you very much. Yes, go right ahead. So hi, Nick, I'm Ola. Uh, Hello. You're a musician at heart, I guess. And, mm -hmm. uh, you've been working with creative uh, things many years, yeah. I guess. Uh, what do you think it is uh, that so many people in creative jobs are so uh, afraid of and outright hostile to these new uh, generative AI tools that that now are available? And what what do you think? What do you think? Uh, what what should be done about that? Because I guess those <laughs> tools are here to stay, right? Yeah, I mean it's a great question. Um, I'm not probably going to give the the greatest answer of what to do about it. But I think, you know, when, when these things come out, like it's threatening and it's also kind of, it's painful, right? Because to be good at something, to be a good musician takes years, decades of practice, right? Like you really have to work hard at it. And then there's a scene that comes out and can kind of just do it, right? Um, so I think that's part of it. Um, you know, there's that feeling of what is my work and my work has been diminished and is it less valuable? And, um, but I think that, um, on the other side, you know, every great, every, every major technological change has changed things, right? Like people used to paint paintings that were real, realistic, right? And then, the, then the, the camera came out and like all the realist painters are like, oh, damn, you know? So what do they do? They go, people start doing cubism, you know? They're like, what? Like, let's do something different, right? We, mm -hmm. This is done like that. Or people kind of worked harder on it. So I think the, you know, the trick is to just adapt, right? Like as a musician, I would be totally fine with having an, a system, like an artificially intelligent system that I could play music with. And I would practice with that thing, you know? Maybe it could, and I could tell it what to play. Maybe it would play some type of music that I struggle with, you know? Like, play jazz, I'm gonna try to play jazz drums with this, because jazz drums are hard, right? And I would practice and practice and practice. I'm still gonna get value from being a musician, and I don't think that people are not gonna wanna go out and see people play music. 
But I wouldn't mind seeing someone who's really, really good at improvising with uh, an intelligent system. I think that could be really cool. So I just think we gotta like, you know, if, if you feel fear, remember that's kind of this construct, right? Of like, of what, of what's, of what you what you know and what you understand. And when you encounter things that are new and different, um, you have to kind of recognize this and kind of update your stuff that's happening. And you know, maybe maybe make choices to assuage that fear. Okay. So, but. I started to think about, you know, that famous moment when Bob Dylan starts to play the electric guitar and, yeah. and people are like, no, this is not like true. Yeah. Um, as they would have said if he was a metal band. Um, but, but, the, but then still, like even in our lifetime, there's been this transformation where, I mean, if you listen to contemporary pop music, most of it is produced through electronics. And, and, and the people who are composers and musicians are often also producers. And there mm -hmm. are people our age, you know, and younger, I think even some who like really struggle with the idea that you are a musician if it's all happening inside a box. And I think at the same time, like we absolutely embrace that you are in fact a, a musician. Nobody mm -hmm. questions that. Yeah. But I, don't you think that there were a lot of realist painters who continued alive for like 40, 50 years and who were just heartbroken at, be, at their irrelevance in the market and sad? I mean, maybe it's kind of an <laughs> assumption, right? Maybe they were happy doing what they were doing. Maybe they weren't, maybe, you know, there was probably some economic impact, right? Mm -hmm. Like I'm not getting paid so much to do this thing, but I mean, maybe there's a low, so the demand for realist paintings go down and they mm -hmm. feel that. And that's probably what a lot of creative people feel now is the demand for their work will go down. Um, but you know, maybe some of them just kept doing what they're doing, you know? Mm -hmm. um, I, and I don't mean to sound callous, but I just think it's, like change is the only thing that's guaranteed, right? But the difference is change is accelerating much quicker now, right? It's not, it's much, it's happening very fast. So it's a little harder to accept these things. Um, also, it's very difficult. I realized like as a create, like these paintings, painters, age, aging painters may have, may become irrelevant for all kinds of reasons. Yeah. And then they will point angrily at cubists. Yeah. As yeah, yeah, oh, yeah, yeah. All those, maybe their paintings weren't that great also. Yeah. All the things that, you know, we look back now and they're in the books and like, this is the canon of whatever, you know, when those things first started happening, you know, people would freak out. You're like, uh, was it Stravinsky? You know, like people rioted in the street when he's played his symphony. Like, you know, <laughs> but that's just a footnote now. You know, now everyone listens to Rice of Spring. Okay, another question. Okay, there. Uh, hi, Nick. Hello. My name is Marco. Uh, we've been learning that this uh, technology is learning really fast. Uh, I wonder, uh, the technology can also unlearn. Uh, what I mean by that is if we planted an idea that we think maybe is not uh, in line with our values, how difficult it is to take it out when the system has grown to this size? Thank you. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's a good question. I mean, um, so, so for example, say you're like, um, you're an artist and you make images. And then you find out that, you know, one of these like Midjourney or someone has taken in your images and, you know, you can type in your name and you can get art in your style, right? Like, how do you, you don't want that. Like I didn't, you know, and this is a very true thing that people should feel, you know, feel this rightly. I didn't, you know, um, this is not what I intended to do when I made this right? for you to be able to do this. So what does that mean for the model? Well, unfortunately, it means that that company would have to create probably a new, well, they would either have to put some sort of logic in between the model creation and the output to like block that. So they're like, maybe the model still learns your art, but people can't like, you know, conjure it out. Um, 
Or if you had to um, update the model entirely, it mean you'd have to retrain it without that training data. Um, so yeah, not super simple. Um, and I think this is going to be a challenge that a lot of these companies have to face in the future. We, a lot of us wish that they would have asked themselves some of these questions before they inputted all of the internet into the, into the models and released yeah. them to the public. So like, I feel that if we are forcing them to retrain the data, this sets every couple of days, you know, maybe that's their own fault a little bit. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Curiosity is a hell of a drug. Yeah. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> but I mean, at the same time, I, I mean, you work with GIFs. That means you also work with memes. Uh, pictures that mean one thing, like there's certainly a lot of images that are like repurposed for extremist communication and, yeah. and so on. So I, I guess you guys have to, to face this. Like, what do you, oh, what, yeah. how do you solve that when other meanings attach themselves to images that have been used for other kinds of communication? Yeah, I mean, we have a whole division related to like, we have a terms of service, right? Um, and, and trust and safety crew that, you know, we try to make uh, an experience for people that's good, right? We don't want people searching stuff and radicalizing or feeling hurt with their search results. And that's a real problem. Like search has a long history of, you know, you putting something in and then you getting something back that doesn't look like you or doesn't feel like you or misrepresents you. So we try to be, you know, very aware of that. And we try to, you know, we try to create new data that goes into the model, right? So we have Studio that makes new stuff, that makes more images that kind of represent different people, different backgrounds, these kinds of things. I think that's the key thing here is like, you have to create more data yourself to put that out there in the world to kind of change these systems. And uh, if these systems are impacting you and making you fearful or making you, you know, emotional or whatever, you got to kind of opt out and not participate. Like, don't click. Don't click on things that, that scare you, you know? And maybe over time, um, these systems will course correct, right? And they'll, they'll learn to optimize for other, other behaviors and elicit better behaviors. Something that you're saying that just like feels super valuable to me is that, that companies that are working with these enormous data sets in whichever way, right, that yeah. have a responsibility for the content of those and can also actively a a affect them and not be like, oh, well, it, it was on the internet. Like, it yeah. feels like we're hearing a lot now. Yeah. 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 I mean, unfortunately, you know, these, uh, these models are not, databases. They're not like you can look things up and find them directly. Um, you know, like I said, that image model has this thing called latent space. Latent means hidden. So these networks, they encode information and they, and they put it in a way that's like this mathematical representation of data. So it's not super easy to just like surgically remove and pluck stuff out because it's uh, this kind of enmeshed information. Um, but either way, you know, that's no excuse. Like, like you still have to deal with the reality of these things. And um, yeah, I think over time, like this is the early stages, right? And um, these things are coming out for better or worse. They're making mistakes. Um, but over time, I think, you know, especially we as consumers, as we choose like what we interact with and what we want to use, you know, we can kind of create the data that maybe pushes these things in a different way. I don't know, hopefully that's not too weird and cynical. <laughs> No, I, I, I think it's kind of hopeful. I okay. mean, in, like it's dark, but it's still kind of hopeful. Like yeah. this is like, <laughs> here, here are some actions that we can do to yeah. move in this direction. Uh, do we have time for one more question? Uh, in the middle there, like straight in front of me, keep waving. I think the mic is moving towards you. Yes, it's coming from this side of the room. Uh, so just keep waving so the others can see you. Yes, there we go. Yes. Hi. Hello. Thank you, Nick and Jana. It was a great session. Thank you. Uh, I have a question. It's maybe not a good question. I'm sorry. <laughs> Before. There's, there's no, no I bad ask, questions. I have a two-year-old. I don't know if you have kids. I do, yeah. yeah. Okay. I'm wondering, do you let your kids uh, play with um, AI? Hmm. Mm -hmm. Like, and, and, and if they do, like, how? Or, or are you the kind of parent that 
you should learn by hand before you do it on the computer. Uh, oh, it's also like drawing skills. <laughs> like you yeah. have to pencil first, AI yeah. comes later. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. It's, yeah. And it's a great question because I think question, a lot about yeah. this, and I, I do think about, I have two two daughters, four and seven, and I do watch and study them and think about them as like developing and intelligent systems and you know I'm very like <laughs> that sounds like, uh, yeah. you know they're humans too but I'm like oh you know so I'm like very like what do I what do I put into these things right it's going to like make them like good or bad right and so I think when you think about how you interact with these things there's two ways right there's like machine learning recommendation systems so like you think about YouTube like YouTube for kids is kind of awful, I know and like it creates this like weird dopamine feedback loop right there's some great stuff on there like my daughters like to sit and watch YouTube videos to learn how to draw, and they do that. And like they can draw better than me, and they learn how to draw faster because they have access to information. It's kind of beautiful, right? But then I have to just be careful, like what they click next, you know? Like so they don't end up sounding some rabbit hole of weirdness. Um, on the other hand, with these generative systems, um, yeah, you know, I think. Um, well, well f the funny thing is, is like it's no big deal to them, you know. I'm like, look, you can type some stuff in and make an image, and they're like, you know, <laughs> like it's not the thing to them that it is to us because they're young and they're taking every. This is just the state of the world, right? So it's not such a freaky thing. Um, but also, they they like it. They have fun, you know. They like to type in funny stuff like people kissing, you know, things like that, and they get pictures of people kissing and laying, you know, th that's fun for them. And so if it makes them happy, and you know, I I, I just don't think they see it as like this thing that's happening that's like going to prevent me from drawing. Like if they want to draw, they'll learn how to draw, right? And, and they, they get pleasure uh, and enjoyment out of that process and that growth. You know, it's like one thing doesn't preclude the other. Yeah. All right. I think we'll end there. And it's like lovely. And also the tactility and like the questions of the things about learning that we don't know feels like the perfect <laughs> ending point. Dear friends, Nick Hasty. Thank you. Thanks. Thank you. Yeah. Oh. <sighs>